Anytime we can sneak a little Rich Mullins in there, that's just good. It's just good. Um, okay, so we are in um, John 13. We're going to transition into 14 today and teach one of my talk about one of my very very favorite things to teach. If I get invited to come teach one Sunday somewhere and they don't care what I talk about, it's this. Um, if if I come preach or teach or talk or whatever at your funeral or at your parents' funeral or whatever, I'm going to talk about this. Um, this to me is such an anchor for who we are in the faith and why we're able to live the life of freedom and power that we are. And so um, getting into this is so exciting for me. Um, the disciples are sitting there, I assume, now pretty much at the, near the end of the Passover meal, which is a long meal. Um, even, the way, even when we do it here in kind of an abbreviated version, it still takes us a couple of hours at least when we do it here. And so um, they would have taken two, three, four hours, who knows. And so it would have been a lengthy time. The disciples, at this point, they're maybe a little confused by what Jesus is talking about. They're a little confused about the fact that Judas has gotten up and left. But the ones who are, are there, they're basking in the glow of the friendship, of the, 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 what Jesus is teaching and talking about. They're basking in the glow of having full stomachs, clean feet, and at least four cups of wine at this point, maybe more. And so Jesus, though, has an urgency with what he's teaching. This is, this is Jesus' last great moment with them before his crucifixion. And, and uh, Doug Foreman, after the first service, said, he's doing this like a mom. It's, it's really kind of funny. Um, when Ginger leaves, even if it's just for, the, for a couple of hours, she's going to leave a detailed set of instructions for me, Right? She knows better than to just take, just leave me with the kids with no instructions. Um, I probably won't feed them and things like that. Like I forget all kinds of, it's not important stuff, but it's stuff I forget. <laughs> and so, um, and so this is like, this is him doing that. He's leaving and like, uh, like the great mother figure, he is saying, listen, I'm about to be gone. You're going to be scared. You're going to be worried. You're going to be afraid. So I'm going to comfort you. The irony of Jesus being the one comforting them in this that, that they're about to be confused and abandoned. He's about to be stripped, beaten, lied about, impaled, and crucified. But he's comforting them. It's intriguing to engage with that throughout the rest of this whole section. Um, so he's, he, clo he ended, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, just as I have loved you, you also love one another. By this all people will know you're my disciples, your love for one another. That's what we ended with last week. Just want to make sure everyone got their homework done. Everybody good on that? Everybody loved like God loved last week? Yes? No? Some, some of you struggle a little with that? Didn't quite attain the level of lo perfect, perfect loving the way Jesus loves? Here's always the concern when we preach a passage where Jesus gives an instruction like this that if we're not careful, we lose track of the fact that this is not behavioral modification that Jesus is engaged in here. He's not giving you an instruction and now saying, okay, go be nicer, let's pass the plate, amen, we're done. This is, this is an identity concept that Jesus is teaching here. Because this is who you are, it should look like this. See, that's, that's the teaching all throughout Jesus and the Apostle Paul and others. And if you're raised like I was in, in one of the churches I was raised in, it was very much so like, no, no, you, you act a certain way in order to make something true. Wow, what a huge mistake. You are my disciples. This is how people will know it. It's not, this is how you become my disciples. 
It is you are my disciples, and this is how people will know it. He knows this is an impossible task. That's why in the next couple of chapters, he's going to say, oh, and by the way, I'm going to send a super, the Father is going to send a supernatural helper. Your job is to stay out of his way. Your job is to submit to him, to defer to him, and he will help you live out the kind of impossible command that I have called you to. So let's not walk away from, from John 13, 35 going, well, I, ju- I just need to figure out how to crank out more God-like love rather than saying, no, no, God-like light and love produced by me. That's who I am. Now let me figure out how I need to show that because that's who I am. That is the identity that he has given us. It's an impossible calling. It's too big. Peter didn't even seem to hear it. If you remember back in verse 33, Jesus says, little children, yet a little while I'm with you. You will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I say to you, where I'm going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give you, etc. So what is Peter's response to the statement, by this you will know people know you're my disciples if you love one another? Jesus, uh, Simon Peter's response is this. Lord, where are you going? He, it's like he missed 33 and 34. He, he got stuck on Jesus going, I'm going away, and you can't come. And Peter goes, whoa, whoa, whoa. That's all he hears. He doesn't hear the next part of it. Wait, I, wait, wait, where are you going? I know that happens. It happens when you're in conversations. It certainly happens in a sermon and something like that where something gets said, and you go, wait, what? And then you miss the next nine things, and, and that's, that's normal. That happens to everybody. Here, that's what G, Peter does here. See, Peter goes, Lord, where are you going? And Jesus answered him, where I'm going, you cannot follow me now. You'll have to follow later. Now, this is, this is fascinating, this teaching that Jesus is saying, and it reveals that even the apostle Peter doesn't understand what's going on here. See, Jesus is saying, Jesus, one writer pointed out that Peter may literally think, I've never thought about this before, that Peter may literally think that Jesus is saying, I'm done with the Jews. I'm going someplace else to found a kingdom. I'm done with this place. I'm going someplace else. I'm sick and tired of this. We're going to go start a kingdom someplace else. And can you imagine how that would have panicked Peter? Wait, and I can't go with you? What do you mean I can't go with you? And Jesus is saying, and it's clear that Jesus is saying this, and that Peter understood Jesus was saying this, that Jesus is saying, you aren't worthy to come with me. You're not good enough to come with me. You can't help me solve this problem. Which, of course he couldn't, but Peter doesn't get that. See, like you and me, Peter's part of the problem. He's not part of the solution. And we think of ourselves as the solution. We've got a problem on our hands. That's not the case here. Someone has to go first. Someone has to carve the path. Someone has to slay the dragon. Someone has to make the way safe. And it isn't you. And it isn't me. And it wasn't the apostle Peter. They didn't understand the root of the problem. They didn't understand what their role would be. They weren't there following Jesus to help him solve a problem. They were there with Jesus to witness and report on his solution. And they would get that. It's, it's an incredible, when we get to, to John 21, what a beautiful picture it is when Jesus restores Peter. Because he's, he's going to say it very clearly, very clearly here in a second, this isn't you, you're not going to get to do this. And then John 21 is going to say, okay, now you can. Someone has to make this way straight. They didn't understand. Listen to this path. The kind of cosmic concept, the kind of 
the battle that's going on, the problems that are being solved. We've got to get outside of this idea that this was some simple little thing that Jesus was coming to accomplish. The, the writer of Hebrews, um, the, uh, the theology text for the Jews, um, to the Jews, says this in 922. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Someone's got to pay. Someone's got to die. Someone has to bleed. Who's it going to be? 23, this was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified in these rites. But the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. Okay, maybe you can purify a, some stone in Jerusalem with the blood of a lamb. You can't purify the stones in heaven with the blood of a living sheep on the ground. Someone else has to do that, and it won't be you. Some better, for Christ has entered not into the holy places made with hands, which are copies of the real things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Someone's got to go there and solve the problem. Not going to be Peter. One of our other New Testament theology texts, Romans, in Romans 5. You see how big a problem it is? Therefore, as one trespass led to the condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification in life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by one man's obedience many will be made righteous. We had a representative in this person, Adam, who, who failed in, as our representative and brought sin and condemnation on the entire race. And then each of us add our part into that sin and condemnation. How are we going to solve that? Can you solve that? I can't. We need someone else to solve it. So Jesus is the one who's going to have to solve it. By one man's obedience, the many are made righteous. 37, Peter said, Lord, why can't I follow you? So he's arguing now. No, no, you're wrong about this, Jesus. I can follow you. I am worthy to follow you. I'm good enough to follow you. I'll lay down my life for you. See how Peter doesn't get the problem? I mean, that's cute. Even if it were true, okay, that's cute, Peter. I'm I mean, I'm glad that you think you're willing to lay down your life for me. I, I wonder if this is a, I've always wondered this kind of a guy thing. Um, maybe, maybe it's not, but I only understand the perspective of the guy in regards to this one. Um, you don't usually hear women talk in terms of like, I'll die for you type of language, especially in like 80s, 80s, 80s movies. There was, that was always like the Robin Hood, like, I would die for you, right? That kind of thing. I've often thought that probably most women, especially ones who are married, are like, okay, that's great, but like, would you pick up your socks? <laughs> okay, I, okay, I get that. Good. Die. Yes. Thank you. Fine. But you know the toilet seat? Could you, could you help me out? With this type of little, like, like, that one's not funny. Is that like an issue? Like, everyone's like, <laughs> quiet, cricket, cricket. Okay, so we'll go back. Toothpaste, is that one safer? Safer toothpaste. Anyway, so, so like, it's, it seems like in some way you go like, well, I would die for you. Okay, well, that's great, but maybe you would live in such a way as to serve me. It seems like that would be the higher calling. We're quick to throw that out there. We think, oh, I would, be, I would be great with the grand opportunity. With the dare to be great opportunity, I would really thrive. The tiny little faithful things, no, no, I, I'm, not, I'm no good at those. But if it was a big one, I would do that. You're lying to yourself. That's not how it works. It just isn't. So to have that in your mind, to realize, okay, how do I be faithful in what I need to be doing right now? Or why can't I would lay down my life for you? Anyway, living is harder than dying 
probably, when it comes to living for somebody. I've not done both, but I think probably living for someone is harder. And I'm going to connect the chapters here because, because the, um, the chapter break, I think, confuses us here. Remember, chapter breaks were added in much later. When John wrote this, there weren't chapter breaks in it. And so here, here you get this Peter saying, Lord, I will, why can't I follow you? I'll lay down my life to you. And Jesus answers him, oh, really? That's what it says. It just doesn't say that, but that's what he's saying. Oh, really? Will you lay down your life for me? Oh, you're going to lay down your life for me. Okay, really? Truly, truly. Remember, like, hey, pay attention to this, because the truth is, the rooster will not crow until you've denied me three times. Now, I don't know about you, but I came away from this passage as a young man with the, I, I mean, fascinating that I could come away from this passage, this passage, with the arrogant idea that, like, well, I wouldn't have. I'm not kidding. That's exactly, when I read it as a young man, I thought, man, Peter, he even told you. He warned you, like, take a note or something, like, don't deny, write it on your hand. Hey, when I get an opportunity to deny him, don't. Like, prove him wrong, Peter. I would have proved Jesus wrong here. Not kidding that that was my mindset, was this judgmental, arrogant attitude about Peter. How do you come away from this passage with that? Isn't the very purpose of this passage to point out to you, yeah, you're the problem. That, that is exactly the problem. You think you've got this. That's the problem. Anyway. <sighs> okay, so it is shocking that he saves us. Okay, so, but let me, let me connect these chapters. Um, so notice Peter's not going to respond to this. Jesus answered, oh, you'll lay down your life. Will you lay down your life? Hey, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow until you've denied me three times. Peter doesn't respond. I don't know if Peter's, because you think you expect him to, Right? No, no, wait, I would, and Jesus, I don't know if Jesus just put a hand up, I don't know if Jesus just kept talking, but I think it's possible that for once in his life, Peter is struck speechless. You know what, by tomorrow morning, remember it's night, it's not long, by tomorrow morning, Peter, you'll have denied me three times. So Jesus keeps talking, now connect this, will you lay down your life for me? Truly I say to you, the rooster will not crow to you denied me three times. Let not your heart be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, there you may also be. I wonder if he had Peter's eyes this whole time. You're going to deny me three times. Don't let your heart be troubled. It's, uh, maybe so. I've never, I don't know that I've ever run, just run those straight through like that, but this is, a, this is just a straight conversation. There's not a big pause here that we know of or anything just straight through, you deny me. They're not comforting him. He's loving them to the end. Honestly, like a good mom does, not to make that connection weirdly. But here's what you need to know. What you need to know about this is that as we talk about helping us become good Jewish audiences, is that a good Jewish audience would hear this language. In my father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you? I go to prepare a place for you. This is Jewish wedding language. This is Jewish betrothal language. This is what's being talked about. Here's how they did it. In the simplest terms, and I'm going to go quickly through this, there's really cool ways to dive deeply, even more deeply into this, but um, is that you have this, you have the, the father's house of the groom and the father's house of the bride. So let me teach you what is meant here by the father's house. Archaeologists call what they did in that part of the world an insula. So we have the insula in Chorazim, um, that we go visit sometimes when we go to Israel. And so the, you see that little wall, that little gate there. That's a gate for, that opens up not into a house, but into a in kind of a courtyard. And there's a courtyard, and around the courtyard would be houses around the courtyard. Everything was meaningful was done in the courtyard. 
like this. So this is a great picture of what a, a Chorazim uh, insula would have looked like, an insulated community. So a little section within that wall would have been one family. So you would come in through the little gate, which probably would have had a closure on it. Intentionally, it was for, partially for defense. In order to go in, you had to duck your head to go in. That's a bad way. If you're trying to invade someplace, you don't want to do it ducked down like that. So it was intentionally made to make you do that. But you'd have the little, and everything was done out in the courtyard. The, the, the rooms themselves were for things that were done in private. Sleeping and making love and changing clothes and that kind of stuff were done in, those little, in the little rooms, the houses. That's, that's the idea. So what happened is, is this, so you would, let's say this is the bride's family insula. And so the, the, the groom's family insula in another town, and the, the dads would have gotten together, the families would have gotten together, decided this, this son and this daughter are going to get married. And then the son, the son would go back to his father's insula and add a room, or wealthy enough, a house, to add a whole section. So they'd have to tear down the wall and rebuild and add in this house. And, and the idea here was he's creating a room for this woman. This is their bridal suite and will probably be their home for their whole lives. Um, unless they you know, come into a fortune and can expand that, this is the idea. And so they're gonna, he's going to go prepare this place. And the idea is that he's going to show off how crazy he is about her with this place. He's going to go prepare a room and prepare a perfect place for her. Because he, this is their bridal suite. He wants her to see this thing that he's made for her and grow weak at the knees and be so proud and feel this, this experience, his willingness to love her extravagantly. That's the idea. You, you understand the parable of the 10 unmarried women now who they're part of her family friends. They're waiting here. The, the best man, so he, the, 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 the groom goes to prepare a place. When he gets done, this might take a year. Or longer. He goes to prepare a place. He sends back his best man. The best man comes back and says, he's done. He's coming. So probably sometime in the next 24 hours, this huge entourage of his family is going to show up here, gather up her whole family, her friends, all go back to his family home, his family insula, and in that courtyard, host the wedding service, the wedding celebration. At some point in that celebration... The bride and groom are sent to their bridal suite to consummate the marriage while everyone waits, okay? And they come back out and the party starts back up at a new level, right? That's, that's the idea. So you can understand what happened is they're over here. Hey, the groom is coming. They gather up their, their lamps, but some of them don't have enough oil to wait. He takes longer than they think. They have to run to town. While they do, the groom and his whole entourage shows up. They all go back to his place. They're doing the wedding, they're having a service, they're having the whole ceremony and the party, and there's two guards standing out there by that little gate, not letting anyone in, and these, these ladies come up and they go, hey, we're supposed to be inside, and the guards say, no, you're not, if you were supposed to be, you would be. The parable being, be prepared to wait. Don't get impatient, be prepared to wait. We've been waiting a little over 2,000 years now. Um, the best man came and told us he's coming back, and now we're waiting. That's the picture that's being described here. I go to prepare a place for you. When I'm done, I will come back and get you so that where I am, there you may also be. We are his bride, his people. This same author, maybe decades later, pins the book we have called Revelation. I want to close out my time with this, with the book of Revelation's discussion 
of this, of this exact situation. So they're not comforting Jesus. Jesus is comforting them. And I think at some point near the end of the book of Revelation, John has had a rough few days, however long it's taken for him to be revealed, the destruction and judgment of the world. Traumatized as he is, we see Revelation 21.2, he says, John, this is the same John, writes, and I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. This, this idea of bringing, so instead the bride is being brought, this new home, this place he's gone to prepare where the bride is to live is being brought to his bride, not the other way. She's not being brought to the home. The home is being brought to her. It's a, it's a, it's a really cool picture. This idea of a bride being adorned for her husband, a certain image comes to my mind when I think about a bride being adorned for her husband. Guys, I know you know, like this, this moment is, is burned in there. It's one of those ones that's, that's there indelibly in your brain is when those, when those doors open up in the back. Or like us, we had a few minutes before the wedding to be together just to, just to sit, just to talk together for a few minutes and then the photographer came in and started taking pictures and whatever. Um, I know that's not traditional, but we, we really loved it. Having that, just a few minutes together like that. But this idea that she is, she is being brought, the bride is being brought to the groom. Adorned for the celebration, this beautiful picture that is created here in Scripture. Revelation 21.9. So I'm going to do this in the order that makes the most sense to us. Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues and spoke to me. Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. In other words, you want a tour? You want to see it up close? Let's go look at it together. This is probably the same angel that has just poured out judgment on the, the harlot of the world, on, the, on the, woman, the worldly woman of Babylon. Judgment has been poured out on her, and now instead of this worldly woman who is who meant to exemplify the temptations that the world has to offer, he says, but now I'm going to show you something right and pure and righteous and just a little over the top. You want to get an image of how crazy Christ is for his bride? This is going to be it. Now, a lot of times what I will do at this point, and for the sake of time, I'm not going to, but a lot of times what I'll do at this point is I will, I will get ideas from the crowd. Um, maybe I'll do a couple. So if you're going to create the bridal suite, your bride's perfect room that you're going to make for her, what are some things that, that you, I'm asking guys only, what are some things that you might include in this bridal suite, this perfect place for her? A big shoe rack, right? <laughs> a shoe room, right? No holds barred, okay? What else? A heated blanket. A heated blanket, very good, yes, yes. Our wives would share that one. Yeah. A mirror? Like a big one? Nice, okay, good. Chips and salsa, Chips and salsa right? <laughs> This is someone who knows his bride, right? It's funny when you do this, college students are really good at this. High school students, not so much. Um, the girls understand the concept, but often the boys don't when you do this with high schoolers, when I do it with them. There'll be some guy who's like, an Xbox, a big, like, yeah, you're not, you're not getting this. Like, I'd, there's always one guy, though, in a large group of high schoolers, it's always funny to me, who'll be like, a chocolate fountain, um, a waterfall, made out, and, you're, and I always make him stand up, I'm like, go ahead and stand up, the girls all want to see who you are, like, they want to. <laughs> 
you're getting it already. College guys are great. They'll be like a retractable roof because I said no holds barred and they can still think that way. They're not locked in their thinking. Like, you know, we, we, we go crazy with stuff that we might actually have. Like you could actually buy on Amazon. That's our, how far our brain goes. But versus, versus like, okay, so now imagine, so limitless creativity. Not just some creativity, not just lots of creativity, limitless creativity, limitless love. Um, it says in, I'm going to go ahead and read the Ephesians. Um, Ephesians 2, 6 and 7. He has raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. He wants a bucket to pour his grace and kindness for us into. How big does the bucket have to be? Eternity. He can never fill it. There's always more grace and kindness to be poured out from him on us. That's the idea of eternity. I grew up with an ADD picture of, of, a, of an endless, interminable worship service. That's how it was described to me. We will worship God in heaven forever. And if you grew up in the church, I did. That may sound like eternity, but it doesn't sound like heaven. Um, here, the, you kids, you, get, like, you don't know how good you have it. Let me just tell you. So, so this, this idea of, of this place that God has gone to prepare this place, this new Jerusalem, this beautiful, awesome, wonderful city. So let me just, let's, let's start with this. 15, the one who spoke with me had a measuring rod made out of gold to measure the city. I love that. Even their yardsticks are gold in this place, right? And the city lies four square, its length same as width. He measured the city with his rod, 12,000 stadia, length, width, height, equal he also measured walls, 144 cubits thick by human measurement, which are also the angels' measurements. So first we start with, I'm, gonna, I'm doing a little out of order from the biblical order because our Western brains prefer this, I think. First is how big it is, how, much, how big a place. So let's, let's go back to the wealthy insula. So a wealthy insula might look like this. Um, a, big, a bigger place, lots of floors, massive, um, like a big, almost a big cube. Um, that that's the idea, a really wealthy place. So when, when the sun comes back, they may have to add a whole other floor or they may have to break out a wall or they may have to spread out another house connected to it. And eventually what you would have in a really wealthy family is you would have numerous of these spread out around a new insula with a big courtyard in the middle, like a college campus would look. So that's, that's the picture being created here is that there's this, this, the well in the center, there might be trees in Israel. If you go to Israel, um, every, every yard that exists has a fig tree, an olive tree, and a um, grapevine growing in it because that's the Zechariah 4 and 5 garden of God. If you want to see those, they're all out at our wedding venue, all, all three of those, and we have an explanation of that out there, why they grow out there. But the, um, this, is, this is the picture of this opulent, over-the-top, this is, this is a God, this is a, a groom who's crazy about his bride and is showing off for her, so he builds this massive place. It is 1,500 miles side to side. So if it's here in East Texas, if the corner is here in East Texas, if that's the southwest corner, the southeast corner is where? Off into the Atlantic. The north corner is where? 1,500 miles? Border of Canada. That would be impressive, but it's not 1,500 miles squared. It's 1,500 miles cubed. So it's also 1,500 miles up. Now, do you remember you've been flying anytime recently? This is Captain speaking. You just reached the cruising altitude of what? What's cruising altitude? 35,000 feet. Six miles. Seven miles. This is 1,500 miles tall. You fly at six or seven miles. 
At 60 miles, where are you? Outer space. At 60 miles, you're in outer space. This thing is 1,500 miles tall. Um, there's all types of artist efforts to, to always create an image of this, which always fail. I don't even try. The great artists try. They fail. Some are better, some are worse, whatever. So I just really appreciated one guy's effort to try to explain what we're talking about here. There you go. That's the proper size relative to the planet Earth. This is a groom showing off. If it's 500 miles away and you turn and look in its direction, you will see nothing from horizon to horizon but the walls of the city. You could be three or four states away and you would see nothing but this along the horizon when you turned and looked at it. And it's got 250-foot thick crystalline walls around it with, four ga with 12 gates, three on each side. And they're made out of, each gate is made out of a single pearl. That's where you get the idea of pearly gates. It's not gates with a little pearl on top. No, no, the gate is a giant pearl. And I don't know if it's their insula gates that you have to kneel down to get through or if they're city gates, which would have been massive, and the size of the walls, probably. We don't, we don't know. But impressive, nonetheless. With a gar an angel standing at each one, facing every direction so that from every corner of the globe you can come to this place. And, and the streets, this is where you get the idea. The streets, it tells us, I'll just read it. The angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal flowing from the throne of God. Remember the water source in the middle of the insula? Okay. Through the middle of the streets of the city and on either side of the river, the tree of life with 12 kinds of fruit, yielding new fruit each month. The leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. I don't know what that means, but I think we need it. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and Lamb will be in it, and his servants will be worshipped him, and they will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more, and they will need no light of lamp or sun, for the, sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign with him forever and ever. And the idea that these perfect crystal walls that we talked about and the light proceeding through them and different foundations, 12 different foundations that the city sits upon. This is a, each one, I don't know, a step. Ding, ding, ding. I don't know how big these foundations are, but they're 1,500 miles square at least. We have a couple of jewelers I know who go to the church. What's the carat count on two feet by 1,500 miles, by 1,500 miles. What's the carrot count on that emerald? I, I, somebody figure that for me. I'd love to know. The, this, is, this is showing off. This is, this is a, a groom showing to his bride, and this is just the city. This is just the outer insula. This isn't even our rooms. How precise is his knowledge of us that he knows exactly what to put in our rooms? He knows whether you want chips and salsa or not, right? He knows what you want in your room. But the thing is, he knows you better than you know you, and so he knows exactly what you want. You might say, oh, well, I would love flowers. What kind of flowers? You say, I like, I like, I like tulips, or I like roses, or I like whatever. And he goes, I know you think that, but there's a flower that grows on a planet in another galaxy, and I happen to know you'll like it better. Or, actually, I know you would like the kind of flower that looks like this that I'm going to speak into existence that's your flower. Whatever that means, room by room, place by place. Do you see how silly the idea of taking it with you becomes? With the idea of this new Jerusalem, 
This isn't just another word for heaven. We're not getting into the theology of heaven and hell and, and all that type of stuff. But at some point, this is where we go as his people to live in this insula, this showing off place for his bride, to celebrate the feast of the lamb. What, what are you going to bring with you? Gold? Emeralds? These are refuge products, refuse products there. The gold that we use isn't pure enough to be used to fill potholes there. Our best gold would be thrown out. As, as, there's no use for the wealth of the world in this place. Not because wealth doesn't matter, but because this place is so fine that we don't have anything to add. We're not the ones solving this problem. He is. He's creating this place. Isn't it interesting that Jesus, the, the by whom and for whom and through whom all things were created, happened to be born in the home of a tecton? The Greek word for someone who works with natural things in his hands. We often call him a carpenter, a stonemason, something like that. Jesus, the Jesus earthly father, Joseph, that, that Jesus just happened to be born in the home of a man who prepared places for people. I, I don't know if Jesus is literally planing out the levels of your bed or if he's speaking these things into existence. Regardless, he could be working on your room now. Knowing, creating the room that's perfect for you, and maybe your room is the last one. Because when he's done, what he's going to do is come back and get us. And, and it's not just the conditions of this place that are so awesome. It's not just this showing off for his bride that's so amazing. Then there's the intimacy of the relationship at a whole new level. 21.4, which is where the Hebrew mind starts, John's mind starts, 21.4, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. No more resentment. No more regret. No more remorse. No more broken friendships. No more broken relationships. No more competition between us. No more win-lose. No more fear of what people are thinking of us. Of course we live forever. How could you, what would you die from? When there's, when there's none of that, when you're in a place where God himself wipes away your tears. All of the little hardships that we face and the big hardships that we face, no more death of anything, no more separation. You can understand why even as good as we sometimes have it, it's still hard. It's hard to be friends and it's hard to, to have good, strong relationships. You have to sacrifice and you have to Pour out everything that you can to live this out, to love as he loved us. But the truth is, he's gone to solve this problem. And you can see why at the end of all of this, as horrific as what the Apostle John has experienced, he closes with this. He who testifies to these things says, surely I'm coming soon. John says this, amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of Lord Jesus be with all. Amen. This is what we're waiting for. This is why we are free. This is what is established for us, what he's gone to prepare this place. For those of us who are his bride, who know him and have put our faith in him and who trust him, this is what he's establishing for us. And at any moment, he's going to come back and get us. I believe at any moment it could happen. And that's that finally, that glorious day when that would happen is just an, an amazing picture. So I want us to pray, and this is why we can make the effort to love one another as he loved us. Is because he solved the problems that must be solved. And the rest of it, 
He's, he's created this redemption. He's created this place. The rest of it is stuff that he allows us to be involved in, that we get to live out being a disciple in small ways and big ways. Be faithful in these little things, knowing that there comes a day when it will seem so tiny what we paid here. Stand with me if you will. Let's pray. Oh, Father. Only you can break us of our arrogance. Only you can break us of our pride. Only you can break us of, of our confidence that we get it and that we understand it. Only you can break us of the certainty in the way we do things and the way we live. And then instead, Lord, we would learn to sacrifice that for your sake. That we would seek to love as your son has loved because we can. Because he's made things right with you and that he's made things right for us with you. That through one man's righteousness, the rest of us can have that relationship with you. And I pray that you would help us to live in the eternity understanding. A forever understanding that allows us to do the small things, the faithful small things. And maybe if we're called to someday to be faithful to the point of death knowing that you will come back and get us someday so that where you are, there we may also be. Thank you for loving us that much and for being that crazy about us. Help us to embrace the truth of that in our everyday life. In your son's name, amen.